You're listening to a devotion by Christ Baptist Church. For more resources, visit our website at ChristBaptist.org. Having moved from George Whitfield to some broader considerations about the Great Awakening that he helped lead, at least humanly speaking, we've seen some wonderful positives. We have considered the, the nature of the preaching, the message, the sermon, that there is an arresting delivery there. We've talked about itinerancy, preachers moving around. We've talked about the development of small groups in local areas, and therefore we've also talked about the use of local people to help lead those early uh, expressions of a church, uh, church planting. Uh, we've seen, a, uh, at least talked briefly, about a growing missionary zeal. So lots of wonderful positive developments coming out of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, however, uh, was not equally embraced and loved by all. And one of the challenges for leaders and others uh, who came to faith was a growing persecution. There was a, uh, an opposition that, uh, in, the, in especially the early years, was particularly rife. For example, in 1743, John Wesley was stoned in Sheffield. Thankfully, not stoned to death, but he was in fact stoned. A few years later, uh, a man named William Seward was stoned to death in a place called Hay on Wye. Uh, and rarely, when these sorts of <clears throat> acts of violence took place, rarely did the authorities step in to stop that violence or bring peace. Instead, um, they decided to allow that to happen because the authorities were hostile to the gospel. That, of course, is not what happened all over the place constantly. Those are, are uh, highlights, if you will. But um, for the authorities hostile to the gospel, their preferred method of stopping preachers was to read them the Riot Act. What was the Riot Act? Well, the Riot Act was a piece of legislation that gave local authorities power to disband public meetings if the local authorities thought that those public meetings, when there were a large number of people gathered together, uh, either were about to cause trouble, rioting, or had be already were just beginning to cause trouble or rioting. And of course, the point was to stop rioting before it could start. But the use and the application during the Great Awakening was <clears throat> to stop preachers that local authorities didn't like for whatever reason, and all the, the people who'd gathered to hear them, uh, was to stop them by simply reading the Riot Act. And the Riot Act would declare that unless anyone, unless uh, people disbanded, uh, they would be arrested and thrown in prison. And it was, in the 18th century, not so easy to get out of prison once you were in. Um, so indeed, uh, people would disband. And, uh, and therefore, it was an effective way of stopping people from listening to or hearing the gospel. And it was an indirect way to try and stop preachers from preaching in particular uh, locations. Obviously, this didn't happen everywhere they went, um, but it was not uncommon. Thankfully, preachers, uh, for the most part, never lost heart, and they continued moving on to different locations and preaching in different places. So there was that kind of persecution. There was also a clerical opposition. Um, some of the, uh, the priests of the day, uh, perhaps out of envy, uh, for all that the attention that these preachers and evangelists received um, and the small numbers of people who were showing up to their church, uh, they didn't like this and so they would, uh, they would react against it. We 
uh, if memory serves, I think we actually have some <clears throat> correspondence between, uh, between uh, priests in their parish churches and their uh, superiors about the fact that there are woefully low numbers of people are attending church, but so many people are coming to hear these preachers and it bothers them. Um, <clears throat> sometimes there was clerical opposition because of theological differences. Uh, they would talk about you know, the, the new birth and being born again. They didn't agree with that. They didn't think that was a way to think about being a Christian. Uh, <clears throat> claiming people in the church, from their perspective, for these preachers and evangelists to claim that people in the church were not saved um, when, in fact, they'd already been baptized as infants and they were attending church, uh, was just causing trouble. In other words, for many, if you were simply in the church and a good member of the church, then that was as good as you could get in determining whether anyone was a Christian or not. And, of course, it was causing trouble to walk in to tell people, well, no, what matters is, are you, are you trusting in Christ and have you repented uh, of your sin and so forth? And, and that was the disagreement there. And, of course, there was always the idea that open-air preaching is dangerous because it is unsupervised. In other words, there's no accountability. Any Tom, Dick, or Harry can stand up and simply say whatever they want to say and call it the gospel. Um, and while this last criticism was uh, sometimes, perhaps often, just an excuse to reject the gospel, <clears throat> to reject gospel preaching, uh, it should be noted that there really were some crazies um, who took advantage of this, uh, this, this movement and, uh, and began to preach things that were very strange indeed. So, uh, so sometimes that was a legitimate uh, complaint, this unsupervised speaking and drawing people away um, from the church. Well, even with strong opposition uh, and ever-present challenges, um, I would like to sum up our brief tour of God's work in the 18th century with some positives. Number one, uh, the Great Awakening was interdenominational. Uh, George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley were Anglicans. They remained Anglicans till the day of their death. Jonathan Edwards, another member, and uh, known, and uh, Whitfield and Edwards met. Uh, they were friends. They appreciated and respected each other. Uh, but jo Jonathan Edwards was a Congregationalist, not an Anglican. Uh, others that I haven't even mentioned in our brief tour here uh, were Presbyterians. And then, yes, Baptists were also part of the Great Awakening, although Baptists were, for the most part, a little bit late to the party. Uh, but they did become an important part, eventually, of the Great Awakening. So it's wonderful to see <clears throat> all these people, these pastors, these preachers, these evangelists, and so forth, working together from these different denominations because they saw uh, their, uh, their commonality in the gospel. So interdenominationalism is, uh, is a first and wonderful thing uh, that came out of the, uh, the Great Awakening. Second, unity amongst evangelicals. And here what I really mean is, and this is perhaps particularly true in the, uh, the early American colonies, <clears throat> and then carrying on after 1776 <clears throat> and so forth, um, but there were believers and churches in some towns that were a long way away from other towns, or some villages a long way away from other villages. And because there was no reason for these villages to have contact with each other, they didn't realize that there were believers in each place. And so because there were circuit riders, because there were evangelists traveling around, uh, visiting different villages, they were able to help make those connections and to forge uh, bonds of fellowship and unity and therefore mutual encouragement um, and so forth between uh, areas that would otherwise have remained unknown to each other. So that created that unity uh, and fellowship amongst evangelicals. So interdenominationalism, unity among evangelicals. Third, um, awakening comes with preparation. 
I haven't really dealt with this a great deal, but I would be remiss if I did not note that um, the, the Great Awakening was, yes, it came through the preaching of, uh, of, of George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and, and uh, Jonathan Edwards and others like them. But before that period of what we call the Great Awakening in the uh, early to mid-18th century, much prayer and returning to the Word of God and Christians attending to their own spiritual condition and preaching truth from the Bible was, was something that was growing and growing and growing. And it was, therefore, a kind of preparation work for the coming of the Great Awakening. Finally, <clears throat> as a characteristic, a positive characteristic of the, uh, the Great Awakening, I'd mention an emptying, emptying that precedes a filling. What on earth do I mean by that? What I think is wonderful about the way that uh, so many uh, preached the gospel during the Great Awakening is that they were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the truth. Um, and that's what we've seen in Galatians 3 in our series recently. <clears throat> excuse me, recently. Um, as we've seen from the Galatians chapter 3, that first of all, yeah, people are blind by their sin. And even in their blindness, as we might note in uh, Acts 17, they are still groping about, as Paul says, looking for life and for hope and yet not knowing where to look for it or not knowing where to find it because they are blinded by sin. But then God's law, God's command, God's word comes and identifies people's true situation, and it points out to them their dire need as sinners. And then doing that, it points them beyond themselves and beyond their abilities and beyond their, uh, their, their moral efforts and so forth to God's mercy and forgiveness that are found only in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. So whether we are living uh, at a time of awakening or not, be encouraged that the gospel, this gospel, never changes, and its power to change lives remains as strong today as it did in the 18th century. <laughs>